I'm back. Welcome to another episode of Look What I Did. I'm Daniel Quinn, your host. Uh, If you guys are like me, it's summertime, and I am thinking about where I'm going to go, places I'm going to visit, how I'm going to get there, automobile, plane, train, uh, but I know that I'm going to have time to be listening to podcasts. So do me a favor and share Look What I Did with the people around you who are thinking about the exact same thing right now. And you yourself, there is back catalog that you may not have gotten to, so go back and check some of the awesome creators that we've had on the show over the last three years. I do want to say that we are part of the Voice Press Network, and there are some other finely curated podcasts that are independently produced over there. So voicepress.com, you can check out shows like Go Rogue, Adopted Mom Podcast, amazing shows. Uh, there's a little bit of something for, for I would say, basically everybody on the Voice Press. So go over there and check that out as well. I do want to thank our Patreon supporters. Um, some of the top supporters, thank you, Kathy, Cindy, Brian, Chelsea, Jesse, Travis, Tyler, and Brian. And you too could be a Patreon supporter as well. Patreon.com forward slash look what I did. You can support for as little as a dollar a month. There's some uh, special content that we've done over the years. There's unabridged episodes that are on there. Uh, Some funny photos, just different things that we'll post over there. So definitely go check that out as well. But let's talk about today's episode. I am super pleased to bring you this conversation with David Holloway. He's an on-set photographer for uh, CNN sometimes. He did 12 seasons with Anthony Bourdain. He did some time with Monster Garage. So he's had the opportunity to be behind the camera and capture these still images that become the images that go with like a, a magazine article or promotional material, those types of things. And just having this conversation with him of his journey from Arkansas to kind of this national stage, um, presidential debates, it's just such an inspiring conversation about preparation, meeting opportunity, taking advantage of opportunities that come your way. Uh, Cool story. Like, he has stories that we weren't even able to get to in this conversation. Um, They're just mind-blowing. Like, one of those people I definitely just have to have back at some point. And, and have a conversation that we'll just put on Patreon or something. I'm, I'm not sure. But if I can ever wrangle him back again, we'll definitely do it. So uh, without further ado, Mr. David Holloway, enjoy. All right, so let's start with who you are and what you do. Uh, okay, uh, my name is David Scott Holloway. I am uh, a photographer, but I am... Uh, I am more than a photographer. Uh, I like all kinds of storytelling and art, and I think that it all is, uh, it's all connected. It's all the same uh, sort of process. And I didn't understand that when I was a lot younger, uh, but I had a series of events that made me realize that all of these aspects are intertwined and that, you know, I don't have to label myself as one thing. I can do anything I want. Well, that automatically opens up. What was the series of events that get you? Did you start as a photographer and then? Yeah, I've always, I, well, I, I started as a skateboarder and then I realized. How was that professional career? Uh, never was pro, but (laughs) I, I had a series of events in involved in that, that led me to photography because a lot of times I was the youngest guy that I was around and people would give me a camera and say, Hey, photograph us here because we'll never be here again and 
you know, we should commemorate this. And through a, a few trips that I took, I wound up um, at a contest. So I wound up going through Nevada with right. a bunch of guys who are older than I am. And we stopped at um, a suburb of Las Vegas and it was a brand new ghost town. Because some locals there had told us that apparently there was a problem with the water. So they had built this development and then they stopped. So it was all brand new houses no one had ever lived in, a bunch of pools, a whole bunch of like just open space. So the guys that I was with, they had decided that we would camp out there for about, I don't know, four or five days. Yeah. We just went out there and we would go into these homes and sleep on the floor and then we would clean out pools all day and everyone would skate and people would always give me their cameras hey take some pictures of me here and i had uh two paper bags full of four by six machine prints of like pictures from the trips and um we were at a contest in tulsa oklahoma okay and uh one of the guys that I had been riding with was like, David, show Kevin the pictures from the desert. They're amazing. You got to see this. And so he introduced me to this guy, Kevin Thatcher, who I showed the pictures to. And I didn't know anything about Kevin, but he asked me if he could have three of the pictures. And I said, yeah, sure, whatever. If you're a friend of my friends, you can have whatever you want. Right. So he took them, and then by the time I got home, he had sent me three checks for $30 each. And at that time, he was the editor of Thrasher Magazine. Oh, nice. And so then my mom told me, to, I was 14, my mom told me, you need to call him and say thank you, whatever. So <laughs> I called him, and I was like, hey, thank you for this real cool. I'm buy some new shoes yeah. and a new deck or something. I don't know what I'm going to do. But he was like, yeah, keep keep shooting and keep sending me pictures. And I was like, well, I don't have a camera. I don't own a camera. I usually just borrow a camera from someone. And, they did. and I don't know what he heard, but he shipped me a big box of film with a whole bunch of like, prepaid envelopes to send the film back to him. And so I kept borrowing cameras, kept shooting terrible, terrible pictures, and then would send them to him. And then occasionally they would come in the magazines. And then uh, that benefited me uh, a little bit because the way that it worked then, and it still sort of works, is when the when the pros wind up in the magazine, every time they like got this hat on or they're riding these wheels or whatever, they get bonuses from their sponsors. Right, right. So even though I was never even a good amateur, I got to go on a couple of tours that were better because I would skate less, but they knew that I would photograph more. Right. So they would potentially make more money over the summer or over the tour. And that was really pretty useful for me because I, I realized in there early on that I would never be a professional skateboarder. You know, I didn't, I had other interest, but it was just a way to be involved. And now I know a ton of guys who like, they're like someone's shooter and they like 
oh yeah, I've traveled with these guys forever. Oh, I know all these guys. You know who you need to come see. You need to come see this guy ride. I'm going to go. I've got to shoot with him tonight or whatever. Yeah. And so there's, you know, there are two parallel and symbiotic um, experiences in skateboarding. Right. You know, these guys who are going to be photographers and filmmakers and whatever, who really wish they were skateboarders. Right. But they also understand that they're not. And then they're friends who benefit from them. And then, you know, it kind of works out. All those guys, like uh, Spike Jones was the biggest influence for me. He's my age, but he is a guy who stuck his finger in everything. Right. You know, he is like trying every pie. Oh, that's really great. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then I worked later, I wound up working on a Discovery Channel show called Monster Garage. Yeah. And uh, that How instance, do you jump to that like, there was a lot of stuff i'm i when i man okay so to backpedal i was then i was living in oklahoma until the summer of my after my junior year and then i moved to arkansas um i've got family on both sides and i spent a lot of summers and a lot of holidays in arkansas and right. i had a lot of friends there but i wound up moving there my senior year in school and um, I was the one kid who skateboarded around town all the time. And then one day I'm skating curbs at this grocery store and I see the volunteer fire department guys pulling up because a house is on fire like a block away. So I skate over there to see it. And then Mike, the, the publisher for the local newspaper, sees me standing on the thing and he's like, David, there's a camera in the front seat of my truck. Will you go get it and photograph us? Because he was also in the volunteer fire department. Got it. So then I like... Does he know you photograph or he's just like, uh, grab this camera? Yeah, we had talked about okay, it because right. he had I was photographed like, that's, me that's around... That's kismet if just like... No, no. That no, might he, not be the right use of that word. But. He had photographed me around town skateboarding. Got and it. then we talked about photography some. And I go, oh yeah, I sometimes do photos okay, okay. for this magazine. And then I shoot those and the next day the... It's a big, cool picture above the fold of the newspaper. And then he was like, you know, if you want to shoot other stuff, you can totally shoot other stuff. And he taught me how to develop film and let me use the dark room. And right. then I don't even remember if I got paid at that point. But I, you're getting to do something that you enjoy doing. Yeah, it was super yeah. useful. And it also, like the thing about being a photographer that's always been really useful for me is that I'm... I'm sh I'm shy uh, and a little bit reserved early on, but having a camera is just sort of that like golden key that opens every door. Like, oh come on, you should be you know people in town would see me and like go, hey David, you you gotta you gotta shoot a picture of this. Oh you gotta do that, and it was a really like amazing thing that uh, you know helped me be included and involved in the community that I didn't. I wasn't always comfortable, like putting myself out there. It was the social lubricant, right? Like, yeah, for exactly. some people, stringy. Or I see that in musicians a lot, where you have like a very like reserved kind of quiet person, but then put them on stage with a guitar or microphone, and all of a sudden it's this like explosive energy just occurs because that's that magic portal yeah. to their. That's how they communicate, right? Like, yeah. whatever that is. Um, and I'm always more comfortable, even still to this day, like I'm always more comfortable if I have a camera with me. Do you want me to get a camera you can hold while we talk? I've got one. It's I'm super not photogenic, so. <laughs> I got this one right here. Do, everybody does. Yeah. And a video camera, which is like. Oh, it's, a, it's amazing. 
it's so yeah, good. I always tell people like there's no barrier anymore to like making music or photography or video because it's on your yeah. it's in your pocket. Yeah. And with all those people, like if you look at like uh, I'm I'm I've been semi obsessed with Bo Burnham for a long time. Oh I don't yeah, know yeah, if you know yep. comedian, right? A comedian that but, did um, eighth grade. What was the name of that? Yeah, eighth grade was his film, right? But he started out doing YouTube videos in his bedroom at his mom's house, and he plays keyboards and he like plays a little bit of guitar and like raps and yeah. sings and stuff. And uh, I was just uh, I I liked him a little bit at first. But then I didn't listen to him for a little while, and I was going through like a phase where uh, I was super obsessed with white rappers, mm -hmm. like people who could like get respect in that scene, because I, I had like a weird. So you're a Kid Rock fan. You just don't want to say it out loud. I, I'm not gonna say that. <laughs> I'm not gonna say I was a Kid Rock fan, but Teasing. I did have an amazing experience where I was with a whole bunch of guys. Most of them were African American, and people started talking about rap. And every person there was like, yeah, obviously Eminem is the best rapper in the world. And I, my mind was blown. Yeah. I was like, whoa, the barriers are all broken down. Like people like accept everyone now and it's a thing. People respect this guy. And, you know, as like a kid who didn't grow up with any money yeah. to see like a guy like that, like you know, propel himself to some level of like respect and recognition globally. I even, I bleached my hair for a while, not necessarily because After of the him. Stan video. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's just like kind of a weird thing, but I was in Morocco and this kid, Muhammad, that I met and I'd started hanging out with, he always called me Eminem. And a little bit, I, I would correct him at first, but then he would call it and he would introduce me to his friends as Eminem. And I was just like, okay, whatever, you know, I'll totally, I'm I'll totally this roll with that. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's not the Could worst, be worse. thing. <laughs> Could be Cisco. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there was like a lot of stuff, you know, I come from like a, you know, background, all my family are farmers or truck drivers or carpenters or right. like people with jobs that like labor and have skills and they, you know, they know how to do things. And I separated myself from it for so long because I well, was like convinced like, no, I'm interested in creativity and art. And I couldn't see the two, I couldn't see where the two fit together. But, uh, you know, back to the point I wound up working on this show, Monster Garage with Jesse James. And he's like, uh, he's like, he's brilliant for sure. He's also like a little bit scary because you never know if he's in a good mood or a bad mood. Right, or like right. You don't know what's going on with the dude. So I would like a lot of times just sort of keep my distance unless we're working. And I was sitting in a shop one day eating like a sandwich or Cheetos or something stupid. And he comes in the shop. He walks over to this big pile of sheet metal and like wrestles one out. And then he's like looking at it, being really thoughtful pulls out a Sharpie and draws some lines on it, pulls out a measuring tape, just kind of eyeballs a few measurements and then like starts cutting it, starts pounding it, hammering it. And I just sat in there alone and watched him like shape this into something. And he wound up, you know, he wound up making this gas tank 
And then I was like, what is it for? And he's like, I don't know. I've just been thinking about it and I wanted to see if it would work. And so, so I, I just needed to make one and see what I thought. And, uh, like literally in that moment was when I recognized like the merger of like art and labor. Yeah. You know, he just made something from his mind, but he used these other skills that he had. And I was so frustrated because literally every person in my family, but me can weld. And I was just like, there's no reason that I don't know how, there's no reason that I'm not a good welder. Right. You know, like I could weld, but not well, not like, you know, not like his perfect beads Sack on his of dimes thing. Just, in the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like that, that really shifted, you know, what I was interested in. Did you disassociate from the welding? Because to you, that wasn't art when it was your family doing it. Cause there's practical, yeah, we're fixing yeah. a tractor, we're fixing right, a right, fence, right. whatever the thing is. And that's what is they it, would, that's yeah. what they would do. So, but then you saw it pulled together in art, and you're like, "Oh, that's different." I've missed an opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I worked in a grocery store once too. So i I went to Arkansas Tech University, uh, and I, because of terrible grades, I lost my financial aid uh, a few times, and I then was forced to sit out for one semester, and. I went home and I started working in the grocery store that I'd worked in before. And I wound up instantly being promoted to head stockman. And then I was in there one morning, like waxing the floors mm-hmm. and just thinking. And I recognized if I didn't leave right then, I'd wind up being manager of this store. I would never go anywhere. And all I wanted to do was travel. Right. So I, my boss comes in, you know, about an hour later and I was like, Hey, I'm leaving in, you know, a couple of weeks I'm done. You know, I appreciate it. I cannot commit to this. And it was a tricky thing because my mother was really happy. So my mother was like, you know, she's the sort of person she's excited that you've got a job. You're doing a thing. Yeah. You're gainfully employed. Like, yeah. My parents really had a hard time. Like, uh, understanding like kind of what I did. Like I'd call my mom, like after I had moved to the East coast, she'd say, well, do you, are you doing anything? You got any work? I was like, no, I haven't done anything for a couple of weeks, but maybe next week, you know, I've got a thing sort of lined up and she's like, well, do you, you need me to send you money? It's like, what are you talking about? Like, you don't have any money, first of all. And I make way more money than anyone else in the family does. Right. You know, even at that point I was like, I don't work a lot cause I work a little bit and I make money. Right. And then I do what I'm well, it's interested that gig in economy, doing. right? Like right. I, mean, I have a friend who's a television writer and it's like half the time I'm like, what are you doing right now? But right. then when he works, it's a lot. Yeah. And that it's kind of like farming actually. Like you kind of like have this harvest time harvest. and you have to sort of yeah. sit on that and like make that work for, you know, however long until the next thing comes along. But I think from the outside, it's like, how are you surviving? Right. <laughs> yeah, I never, um, I never thought of like explaining it to my parents like that. But that would have made, uh, that would have like greased a whole bunch of. I'm here situations. to help with words. That's Thank what you. I do. Well, That's it's a little, <laughs> it's a little late for that. Oh, they, right, right, yeah, they yeah kind of get it now. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I I think that there's like a lot of, um, you know, a lot of instances that I've seen in that now 
where, you know, I've always gravitated towards people who, you know, do labor. Right. Who, like, have skills that are, you know, I, I just got really, recently, so my son is, he just turned 11 today. Oh, congratulations. Uh, he plays a lot of video games, and I bought him some headphones, and they're corded headphones, but he fidgets a lot, and he'll, like, pick at the thing, or he'll chew on it, or whatever, and just... You know, not intentional, but he sort of does it. So the first time he like chewed a hole in his headphones thing, I went and I got some electrical tape and I taped it up. But then the next day I see there's another part down here. And then I was like, okay. So I went and got Plasti Dip and I like, you know, recoded the wires. You know the stuff you can put on your fingernails to make them taste bad so you don't bite them? Oh, That's what you should put on the wire, right? That's like, amazing. Just like- <laughs> that is amazing. What it? I mean, that's got to be a thing, right? Is that a real thing? Yeah, no, there really is a thing. It's like almost fingernail polish. You just put it on your fingers, and like when you, my dad was a bad fingernail biter, and he would put it on, and that would like because it's just the worst tasting thing on the planet, and then you don't want to do it. Oh my god, you might have saved me so much time. Idea broker. (laughs) Uh, We'll come back to that when that next time I'm like, that one's free. That one's free. How do I solve this problem? I need to call Daniel. Like a one man A team. Uh huh. Right. <laughs> <laughs> who who do you relate to in the A team? Is there are you Hannibal? So I so I share a shop with a guy you might know, which is how we know each other, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And we we both love the A team, and we were working through like there's four of us technically sharing this space, one of whom I never see. But it was like, well, if we're the A team, how does everybody break out? And uh, at at the end of the day, out of that group, um, I I got assigned to Murdoch. Which oh, I'm okay with, yeah, because we were kind of looking at Murdoch as like the crazy guy that's not totally dependable. But if you look at him in a more positive light, he's the guy that seems like very like disorganized. And but at the end of the day, he always ends up with the solution and yeah. gets you out of that jam. Yeah. And like he's actually really, really reliable, but just like almost chaotic getting there, right? And I was like, I'm actually I'm good with this. Plus I get to be the funny guy. So Yeah. Yeah. I, guess I, I think Murdoch is the win in that. If you I'd like to be Hannibal, but I'm not that organized. Who uh no, I always felt like Hannibal got too much credit for everything. Because really he's just a manager with a bunch of people who are who are, you know, violently independent. <laughs> yeah. But he pulls that group together Loves it when a plan comes together. I, I don't think you're wrong. I think a lot of times it's like he'll say, I love it when a plan comes together. But all the other guys did the th- right, thing. Right. Like, didn't Mr. T tear apart the elevator to armor the van? Like, right. <laughs> it's like wasn't that all him? Didn't Face get the keys from the woman because yeah, like, she swooned her? Or Murdoch whatever? found five batteries you could turn into a welder. Like, uh, I, you know. What, what and is, stole a helicopter. He yeah, always and had Hannibal a helicopter. occasionally rips off a mask, right? right? Like, that's pretty much the, or not oh, a mask. Yeah, I guess he was a mustache a master or whatever. Of yeah, yeah. yeah, he does do that. So That's actually pretty good. Yeah, uh, I mean. You know, I used to wear a lot of fake mustaches. Really? True story. <laughs> I uh, I am apparently still currently uh, banned from Capitol Hill uh, for several things. The the Hopefully reason that they them, told me yeah, go ahead. The reason that they told me was uh, for I was observed associating with a criminal element, and when I told the woman, I was like, "Oh, do you mean the Nazis or do you mean Omar's brother?" And she goes. <laughs> Who is Omar's brother? And I was like, oh, you mean the Nazis. 
It's like, no, that was all sorted out. Like, I'm a journalist and whatever. So she had to go and investigate it. And she's like, oh, you were cleared by the FBI and by the Secret Service, but you were never cleared by Capitol Police. And so you're not allowed on the grounds. What? Which it's like a super funny thing because I was working for CNN at the time. Yeah. And then I was, the, the reason that I found out was because the woman who handles credentialing had called me and said, David, I turned in all of these credentials. Yours was the only one that was flagged was or not, Yeah, that was not yeah. approved. And uh, I said, oh, that's really weird. She's like, I could have put your social security number down wrong or whatever. Uh, can you look into it? I go, yeah, it's no problem. I know a couple of guys over there. I'll, I'll call and sort it out. And I called and they steer me around. And then they put me in touch with this woman. And then I'm talking to the woman and I explain the situation. I go, yeah, so what's the deal? And she's like, okay, I'm going to tell this to you in code because I've never had to do this before. And I was like, no, 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 no. Don't do that because I'll never figure it out. <laughs> I was like, you just got to be skill. straight with me and yeah. I'll say, okay. She goes, you were observed associating with uh, a known criminal element. And I had done a lot of documentary work on neo-Nazis and uh, it had become a problem several times. And so I told her, I was like, oh, you either mean the Nazis or you mean Omar's brother. And then, you know, now so CNN said, well, we can we can sort this out. But we, you know, we've asked a lot of them for this inauguration. This is during Obama's second inauguration. Gotcha. And so he, they said, well, it doesn't really matter because you... You can just work at the White House and not on Capitol Hill. Right. Which I was uh, I was a photographer. (laughs) I was a photographer for two presidential debates. So I was on stage with and in the green room and like you know, in this proximity to the president numerous times in the previous weeks. But I couldn't go to Capitol Hill where there would be like fifteen hundred policemen and you know, 10,000 people or whatever. Weird breakdown of red tape. But then I could go to the White House. And and be in this proximity with, yeah, that's bizarre. So I actually have a question about this because this came up the other day. So how does it work? There was a documentary on HBO some time ago about like the- Pete Souza? No, it was about the, like the meth problem, like near Van Buren, Fort Smith area, right? And uh, like they're- clearly observing illegal activity right as a journalist in whatever capacity videographer photographer Mm -hmm. writer like i've never fully understood how that line because like you're observing a criminal action right like Mm -hmm. you're or you're observing neo-nazis or whatever like potentially engaging in well, so in these instances, in not all of them, there have been a, like a few crimes, but the in most of these instances, it's not that I was there during a crime. It's that the people involved are known, known criminals. Elements. And if I'm like seen with a dude a dozen times and he's a guy being observed by the feds or whoever. You just get associated on the list. Right. But Somebody's putting but, my name down. But if you were photographing like this is dumb. I don't know if ingesting a drug in and of itself is illegal or if it's more around like the sale or, but it's possession. Right. So like if you were in a position where you were photographing that, which this documentary does, Mm -hmm. 
is there like an exclusion to like, how does that, I don't know if you've ever been in that position. I just don't know how that I'm genuinely curious how that mm -hmm. works. Right. Like I actually, I don't know. I've been at like a few instances, probably like the most criminal activities that I've been at have been, uh, assaults. Okay. Where someone beats someone up and I happen to photograph it or film it or whatever. It's an altercation of something. And, uh, I have had, I had an instance where the, I was going to make a trip and I had made a plan with this guy. I said, okay, look, I'm coming there, but you have to pick me up or this other guy. So I'm not going to get in the car with anyone else, you know, whatever. Okay. Totally fine. Like five days later, I got a call at my office from uh, the FBI. Uh, Mr. Holloway, you know, my name's Special Agent Johnson from the Washington Field Office of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And uh, I'd like to talk to you about an upcoming trip that you have planned. And I was like, I thought that it was one of the guys trying to just like <laughs> out me or something. I was like, whatever, don't call back. And I hung up right. the phone. And then like an hour or so later two guys show up to my door with their IDs and a government car and suits. And they say, we only want to talk to you about this. And I was like, no way. Like they're like, we were just interested in seeing your photos when you come back from the thing. And I was like, if you guys know that I'm going, you already have someone who's so much more involved than I am. Right. That like, I don't believe that you guys are interested in my well-being at all. You guys are definitely going to put me in a situation where I'm going to get shot by someone. Like, it's like, no way I'm doing it. No way I'm involved. You guys can go onto the website and you can license my photos the same way that every magazine would do. Right. Or you can wait till you see it come out in a magazine, but I'm not showing you anything. And they called me. They had, including that one, they, uh, they called me in four times. And then like the, I assume know, they don't like being told no. <laughs> I mean, they were fine about it, but there was like some weird stuff. Like they called me to another office and the, I go in to meet the guy. And that was when there was a secret service guy who came to the meeting too. And they had a folder, like almost an inch thick, a manila folder with my name on it. And uh, I'm like sitting there at the thing and I saw it on the table and I reach over to grab it and the guy like puts his hand on it. He's like, this is classified information. I go, it's got my name on it. <laughs> it's I, me. I'm pretty sure I know everything that's in there. <laughs> you know, it's like not classified. I also don't believe it was real. I think it's like a weird prop. Right. I think yeah. they got everything on a computer and the guy is just like. Yeah. Nobody's carrying around a physical inch thick file on right. anybody anymore. Right. So, you know, it was just like a sort of goofy thing. And I was like, okay, you know, we need to have a lawyer here next time we do this because I feel intimidated, you know, that you guys keep yeah. hassling me about this. And then I never got, uh, I never got called in again. So it was like, fine. But at the same time, like we had, a, you know, a photo agency I was putting the photos up. When I got back, they could literally go online and look at them. But I think, I don't know if they wanted to quiz me or they thought there was stuff that I wasn't showing. Or the photographs or that aren't published that right. might have something. Yeah. Right. I mean, it makes sense, I guess. Like, I'm always kind of blown away by, like, how many civilians get used or t tapped, whatever, to assist. I mean, it makes sense, I guess, right, in some ways. Like, But, yeah, that's we've had some 
people on that worked for the CIA or whatever. And there's some interesting conversations right. sometimes where it's like, okay, well that happens, you know, like whatever. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, you know, what the criminal liability would be. I think if, you know, if someone's just doing drugs, you know, I, in New York, since COVID happened down in the Bowery, I haven't been over there. I, I usually don't go that far south of my neighborhood since COVID. I'm like kind of tight around my apartment, but I've gone down there like four times in, in the daytime and every single time there are guys just out on the street shooting up again, like in their That's abdomens nuts. or like in their arm. And you know, I, the, I haven't photographed any of them actually, because a couple of times I've got a little electric scooter and I, was trying to photograph a like a BLM protest right. and I had like scooted ahead of them and then like went and locked my scooter up and then like ran over a thing and walked around for a couple hours and then I couldn't actually remember where I put my scooter. <laughs> so I'm just walking around. I was like, man, did someone steal it? I don't think anyone stole it. I literally just can't see the place that I put it. And so then like that's one of the times I walked by and this guy is like, leaned up against the thing and he's kind of slumped over and the needle's still hanging out and my camera was in my bag and I was like, I should photograph this. I'm so tired right now. And there were like four other guys sitting on the sidewalk there and I was like, I don't know, but this is going to be a debate and I'm not prepared to like deal with like other dudes for photographing the sky or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't, but then... You know, other of my friends who still live down that far down are like, no, dude, it's still like that every day. You can just come down. The cops aren't cleaning anyone up. It's just uh that's that's crazy. Free right, for so, all. Do you so we've had um a photographer that does a ton of stuff for Getty, mm -hmm. right? Like all the maybe not all, seemingly all of the NFL games and like mm -hmm. he does a lot of sports stuff but you you don't post to get you just like where are you putting stuff to. up for licensing like so i don't actually anymore i do primarily commercial work and television work now but i was repped by getty for a long time i won the, i was awarded the first getty grant for editorial photography Ooh. uh for my work on the very new nazis fancy. it was very nice. nice a big exhibit in france it was really fun but it's a big giant monster that was always kind to me but i always expected it to eat all of us yeah and it sort of has right uh there are some things like i used to go to i used i still photograph not the ufc as much just other MMA, but I was the first person to shoot the UFC for Getty. And I was shooting, I was represented, I wasn't a staffer, so my photos are my own. Right. And I would post them up, but Getty makes these deals with the different companies where they get a subscription, for instance. And yeah. Like Sports Illustrated could have a subscription where they don't want to buy rights managed because it's more expensive, but they want all of these other things. So I was going to the UFCs for a few years before anyone was interested in it. Right. And then Getty was like, oh, the Washington Post, they don't want to pay rights managing anymore. They want to be able to get these pictures through their subscription. So we want to pay you to put the photos up. And I said, no, because they would pay me a stupid day rate that 
one licensing of one image would be more than what they'd pay me, and then I would not own the pictures. Right, right. Which is, uh, you know, not a problem if I'm being paid adequately, but to work for the wire service, you are not paid adequately. And and it's also because this was something that I was personally interested in. Right. You know, I wasn't doing this for a job. I was doing this because this is what I wanted to photograph. And then that was a debate for like a couple of months. And then I showed up one day uh, in Vegas to a UFC fight. And they were like, uh, but someone from Getty's already here. And I was like, no, they're not. Because... I'm the one that does this and I've been doing this for years and you know me. And they're like, no, we got a request for this guy. And they flew someone in from LA or drove someone in from LA. I don't know how he got there right. to photograph the things, but he's a staffer. Electric scootered from LA. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so they he's kind still of, looking. They kind of muscled me out of it. Yeah. Well, and it was like a dick move, Getty. But it eat a, Oh, sorry. It, people. That was all editing. I'll have to do later. <laughs> uh, but I mean, that maybe pushes you into the film thing more or TV yeah, stuff Yeah, a little more. bit, yeah. Which I don't think... So, you know, when, when I was told about you, it was like, oh, he's a photographer on these shows. And it's like, and yeah. it, mentally for a second, I was like, do what? Because you don't think of a still photographer and television as going hand in hand. Right. But almost immediately, I was like, well, I guess there has to be promo photos and, yeah. you know, whatever has to occur. Um like yeah it's a good and lucrative thing as a photographer though it is sometimes painful because you are the least important person in the equation <laughs> yeah. the goal is to make television or to make film and you know that's really labor intensive and you know time intensive and expensive expensive and they never you know they never have enough time they're right. always like we need, you know, we got to get all this done. They all, whatever all the things are, it takes a lot of time. So you have to be able to work around all these people. Yeah, you're shooting through the cracks things. in the schedule almost. Like, yeah. yeah. And when you're shooting, when you're shooting a scene that's actually happening, mm -hmm. if there's a good shot, there's a video camera there. Right. So you're like just to the left. To the <laughs> you got like light poles in frames, or you got just this terrible backdrop. But even when you find a really good position, when a camera operator sees, is like, oh, yeah, that's better. You just get pushed out of the way. Right. And it's kind of, you know, you work up different, like, working strategies. Like, I'll shoot everything as it's happening, but a lot of times I'm always, like, taking people afterwards and going, like, okay, we're going to shoot that again, but just you and me. Let's, right. like, go there. Or we're going to, you know, uh, several shows that I've worked for, like, the people... Uh, I would just take them away. Go like, all right, you've got 20 minutes now. I want five of it and let's go here. And right. So that was, you know, that's, that's good when it works, but it usually only works after you've got a relationship with someone. And yeah. Cause you have to like, they're tired. They, they have this break to go to the bathroom, to eat, to right. whatever the thing is. And you're like, Hey, just give me a percentage of that time. And they're like, yeah. why? Right. Like, right. I don't want to do this. Um, that's exactly it. <laughs> have you, have, have you ever considered or like for me, I imagine if I was on set that at some point, like in front of camera or, or behind camera work, but like being more involved in that storytelling as well. Right. Like, is that something that you've 
plane yeah, in it yeah, all or is yeah. it all still photography or no i i do i've shot you know some videos for the show so like i worked on uh Anthony Bourdain's show for a long time. And one of the awesome things about it was if there was other stuff happening, if I just went exploring and I was going to shoot something, I could shoot some video and bring it back and show one of the producers like, Oh my God. Yeah. Let's do that. Yeah. So I've got video in I think three or four different episodes. Or, That's cool. Yeah. And I'm super stoked. Cause like the show looks so good and like my stuff never looks that good, but I'm always excited to go like, yeah. You're like I your own that. second unit. You're right, like, I'm just right. walking around picking up this stuff. See if I can get it on there. That's super cool. Yeah. So, so, uh, so you worked on the Anthony Bourdain show. Um, for how long were you on that? Uh, I worked on Parts Unknown for twelve seasons, and then I worked with him a little bit before when he was at the Travel Channel. Okay. And the the thing is, I had a friend who worked on uh, the show on the Travel Channel, and he worked on, all, he had a contract for all the travel channel shows. And like when there were things he couldn't cover, like I would get called in and like cover them for a little while. And I like hit it off with those guys pretty easily. Yeah. So then fast forward, you know, to like later, I did like ran a few random things with them throughout, you know, the, the years. And then when they came to CNN, I also happened to be there already. Oh. And I had a producer who was like, oh, yeah, it's a big problem because uh, they won't let anyone from CNN work on the show. They have a very tight crew and they don't want any yeah, sort of interruptions. And, yeah. and I wound up uh, texting Tony. I was like, oh, it's really weird. You're at CNN. I'm at CNN now, too. And then like the next day, I was informed that, hey, you are now working on his show. And that was super easy. Like it's a lot good. of pull though to just like what were you working on before that? Every uh, everything just and pick Turner, up stuff around like, CNN. Like I worked on, you know, all of Anderson Cooper's like shows. Like anytime we would be out of town, I would yeah. work on those. I worked on it was the 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 department that I worked for was the in-house agency for all of Turner Broadcasting. Got it. And I wound up primarily doing CNN and uh Cartoon Network, but I also worked on every other brand. What is the still photography in Cartoon Network? I'm remiss to not ask this. It is remarkable. Guys drawing it, things. Uh-huh. Like a lot of a little a lot of behind the scenes, but also like all like the you know, all the portraits of like Seth and like all the robot chicken people or behind the scenes of that. But I forget the there's the very live best stuff, stuff was I went to Comic Con for like seven years paid for by them hmm. which was i own a awesome. camera can i just go as like your second 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 ad on that i mean <laughs> i i still comic-con is on my list of things to accomplish before i die oh. i know it's beyond manageable at this point it's still i think it's I still want to really go. good like um there's so many really interesting things about it because like one thing one thing that I'm not supposed to tell uh, them is that for years when I would be places, if I was like doing a CNN debate or I was at Comic-Con or whatever, I would often send notes out to friends going, hey, I don't know who else is in town. I'm here. I've got a hotel room if anyone needs a place to crash. So some things like I've got photos of like a couple of like the, you know, the Iowa caucuses and stuff where I'd have like six people sleeping in my hotel room. 
You know, it's just because like, you're just there and you have the space. Yeah, I'm not yeah. paying for it. I'm right. not. I'm going to give you my number uh, before you leave. So that'll be well, they're not. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't do anything. This Call year. me for Comic Con. Well, oh, yeah, nobody so, did anything this year because you know that one thing. Yeah, that's it. so. I but that actually, I was going to ask this question because I think if I was the onset photographer for something, I would be drawn to like fiction shows because that's I like. Yeah, probably. I, I don't know. I watch a lot of like Discovery Channel and Travel Channel, whatever, but it sounds like, are you drawn to that where like people mm. doing stuff or did you fall into that? And that's just kind of the avenue. You've yeah. I, I'm, I'm now, uh, I'm now in the union and I'm trying to work on films, but I have like a big history of these like unscripted shows that, you know, pe people see it like clients see it and they, they don't always, they're not always able to imagine that you can transition to this other thing. Right. Because people want you to specialize. Right. Like, even though no one really specializes, they want you to specialize. When I look at the thing and say like, oh yeah, I've been a photographer for almost 30 years. You know, I've done a lot of stuff. When I look at the range of things that I've done, it's like, there are things that I focused on at specific points, but like I feel like I've got an exceptionally wide skill set. Maybe not exceptionally wide, because I think there are a ton of photographers out there who have really wide skill sets. Not everybody is uh, Tim Ernst. Right, you know, right. You know, very specific thing. Ansel Adams, right? Like right. I do this thing and I do it maybe the best or very well. Top right. of the field, I, I would assume. Right. I don't, I don't know photographers that well. That's all right. That's I mean, there nobody does. That's the other thing. It's like it's been, there probably are only, like, I always felt like there are maybe two or three famous photographers. Like, let's see who you can name right now. You can name two photographers. Tim Ernst, because you said that. Oh, no, he doesn't count. Ansel Adams. Yes. David Holloway. Oh, my God. Um. <laughs> The two that everyone can name are Annie Leibovitz and Ansel Adams. Yeah, I wasn't even going to get to Annie Leibovitz. I think that this is bad for me. Oh, she she's like the probably the most famous living photographer. Right. And then... Uh, Wesley Hitt was our Getty Images guy, the sports guy. Okay. No photographer at Getty is famous. They That's will be true. Known, That's true. They will be known, known by other of, photographers. Yeah. But they will not be your mom. Like the 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 sort of way that you can determine if someone is famous is if your aunt or your mom or someone outside of your like circle of like interest can go, oh, I know about like Ann Geddes might also be a famous photographer, but there there's a parallel here, actually. I had never thought about this. Photography is like movies in the sense that you can name famous photographs. Right. Like right, right. the girl on the cover of National Geographic with like the bright blue eyes and yeah. the, right. Like, um, you know, that photo, you know, the photo of like the really emaciated kid with the vulture and like, right. Like these like right. really like they are part of the fabric of society. Like, you know it. Yeah. I couldn't name any of those photographers. And I think like with film, I can tell you like, and I'm pretty into film, so I probably could name the writers, but like a lot of people can't name the person that wrote the movie. You might be able to name the director, but the person that came up with the idea, like, right, you don't know, right? Like, you just know the end product. I had never thought about that. Yeah, photography is a very like anonymous business, yeah, probably yeah. if you're not in it. But there, you know, the closer you get to that circle, like, 
you might know more people, but I don't think that any photographer, I, I can't even think of his name right now. The, the guy who does, uh, humans of New York. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like he's one for, you know, whatever, he's got a billion Instagram followers or something now, but like he's one where like a lot of people in the middle of the country were like, Oh yeah, I, you know, follow him. But I bet only maybe a third of them know his name. Like, I don't, I can't even think of his name right now, but he's like, you know, kind of huge in the, yeah, in the circle. It's very difficult also to tell with social media because I know a ton of people with huge social media followings who aren't making a living at photography. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're trying to find ways to like, uh, be engaged in influencer culture. But I honestly, I think influencer culture is so wrong. Like I always say, if you want to be an influencer, do something influential. Yeah. I think that's a fair call out. Yeah. But like most people are like, I want to be an influencer. Like what, what does, does that, that mean? mean? Yeah. 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 <laughs> nope. Cause I think about that. Like I don't want to be an influencer. I just want to create like cool content and put it out there and hopefully somebody's inspired by a conversation. Right. My daughter kind of does want to be an influencer or because that's a vocation now. And it's like, right. how did that get to be like Michael Jordan didn't start as a tennis or tennis shoe salesman, right? right? Like he wasn't in basketball shoes was what he did. He was really, really great at a thing. And then this influence came because of that notoriety. That's a good call out. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. I think there are like, um, you know, I'm not sure what the numbers is now. I think it's like the influencer marketing is supposed to be at like $9 billion, I think, this year. And what whether that could be, like, I know Turner did these things where they would have like a, uh, like a panel with like people who are going to be in an upcoming show or something, and they'd bring all these people in, and they would talk about the panel, and they would show a clip from the thing. And then all of these influencers who are brought to the thing are all paid like 1500 bucks a piece. Yeah. And they have to make like two posts in the next 30 days leading up to the launch of this show that somehow reference this show. And yep. it could be, you know, pictures they made there, but they didn't have to be. They right. just had to have uh, some specific hashtags used right. in the post. Right. That would hopefully generate people back to the other things. But it was, it all seems so ridiculous because, you know, I went to a couple of those things and I knew several of the other photographers who were there and they're like, yeah, dude, this is a, yeah, dude, yeah. this is a sweet payday. I'm making 1500 bucks to do. But you can't fault it either. Cause it seemingly works like, you know, yeah. it, Kardashian squad, literally just right. a bunch Giants. of people influencing <laughs> stuff. Like, and Paris Hilton, we had this conversation with somebody not that long ago, like Paris Hilton kind of seems to be the vanguard of this group in a lot of ways of yeah. like, I am just here, but I've managed to get into the public eye and parlay that into some kind of career something that if you had to really put a finger on it, it's like, I don't know what you did. Like, yeah, you're just here. Right. Like, and I'm not, I'm not belittling it. She did it well, right. Really well. She created and, an industry that is and seemingly intelligently. I don't know if it was all sheer luck, 
but there does seem to have been some planning. It, it and, though a little bit like the way that sports traditionally is, uh, sports traditionally leans towards people who are physically gifted, right? Maybe influencing leans towards people who are visually gifted. Like, yeah, yeah, no fair, right? Yeah. You know, but I mean, TV and film seems to lean towards right. visually that, gifted people too, right? That's like, what I was like. That's like one of the things that I've, I've been thinking about a lot. The idea that uh, influencing is a lot like acting because so many of the people involved, like the creations that they're putting out there aren't real. Right. They're like characters the that show, they've created yeah. or there are you know, a lifestyle that's like a fictional lifestyle that they've done. You know, in New York, there are buildings that are swanky apartments or all these things that you can rent out, like, you know, in very small increments to use them to shoot photos for your Instagram feeds. It makes sense, I guess. And they're like it remarkably well-decorated, super yeah. like swanky. And you can run it for 20 minutes to go shoot the thing and look like you're living this living life. that lifestyle. Right. Which, it, like, that was an early call out about social media in general, I think, like, when Facebook really kind of came to the fore. And MySpace had been there, but it began to really hit me, like, people are treating this like a television show. And it's not my friends, it's my viewers. And I'm curating an existence. Yeah in an effort to get likes and like, right. Like whatever the thing is. And I think there's some insidious stuff that happens because of that inadvertently. Um, but it's, it's just not real, right? It's just not real. And, and I'm fine with influencers existing and being able to kind of cultivate this because I guess to some extent, like somebody's got to sell the stuff. There's always been salesmen, right? And mm -hmm. so, if, all right, if you figured out how to do it on Instagram, like kudos to you. I wish I had thought of it, I guess. You know, like um, you figured out how to make this work. I, I don't fault that. But it is a very thin veil of, a th I don't know, it just feels like not quite real. Yeah. And um, something about it bothers me a little bit that like that's a thing to aspire to at this point i think because like you said like you haven't done right there's not a thing there i don't know it's just weird like there, there i think there are some you know there are obviously like exceptions and examples of people doing really cool things um you know obviously casey neistat's a really good example of like a yeah. guy who i didn't know anything about him for a long time, but I knew his like annual videos that he does like the, uh, the speeder bike electric bikes that was amazing or the, um, snowboarding behind the police SUV in the streets of New York. Okay. Like he made every year he and this other friend make like one big Super amazing video. Yeah. And, I had always seen those videos, but I didn't realize that it was the same two guys who were doing it. Right. And then, you know, I found that someone like mentioned something about it and I went and I like watched a couple of his videos and I was like, oh yeah, he did this amazing thing early on that he, he got an iPhone, early iPhone, or maybe it was an iPod. Uh, I think it might've been an iPod. Uh, because it was when the ads were the silhouettes of the people. Oh, dancing yeah, yeah, yeah. With like the headphone coming in. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. yeah. Yep, I remember it. Uh, he did those. Uh, they, those were up all over the city, but he 
his battery was dying in his thing and he took it in to get it replaced and they wouldn't replace the battery. So he and his brother made stencils that said like, you know, whatever, Apple is lying to you. The battery has an eight month lifespan and they won't replace it. So we know whatever the statement is, but he made a stencil and then his brother filmed him going all over the city, spray painting it on every one of those Apple ads. And then it was before, uh, it was before YouTube. So they made a video from all their footage of that. And then it was like emailed around to people. And it was like one of the first videos to get over a million views. Right. It's this viral thing in it. Yeah. And then, uh, I guess Apple like, reached out to him and said, I wonder why, okay, we're going to change, you know, this policy, right. you win. And so like, he's like a guy who's like made, who was influential. He did things that like caused some sort of effect. But just because he was being authentic to himself, right? Like he's just yeah. doing this thing and it has an influential, which I think to me, like I respond to that better, I guess, yeah, right? Yeah. As opposed to, I want to go influence something. What will that be? I guess I'm going to poke here, right? right? Like, and that, I think that's where it's kind of like, well, I grew up in the band scene, right? And there was this whole concept of selling out. And it like, what, and I guess if I put it in that light, part of me is like, well, I get the guy who ends up playing a hotel bar because that's guaranteed money. And like, yeah, it seems like selling out, but you're, paying your bills and you're closer to what you wanted to do than flipping burgers or whatever. Right. Like, but the code growing up was play the music I'm true to right, and right. people will find it. And then somehow I'll be a rock star off that, which almost never works. But <laughs> I, I had, uh, one of the reasons I moved to DC was because of like right out of college was because of the music scene. Yeah. And I had been pen pals with a few of those people, um, since I was 14, since I was skateboarding. And there was, I, I always said that my photo book was going to be called uh, The Greatest Bands You've Never Heard Of. Yeah. Because all of them, like, DC has it, I think, worse than a lot of places because uh, Discord Records is there, Fugazi's there. Yep. And every band, like, every band in DC, like, sort of subtly compares themselves to Fugazi, but nobody can live up to that. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of things that people make real decisions about there because they're like, oh, that's not okay. Uh, but one band, the Dismemberment Plan, which was uh, mm-hmm. uh, one of my favorite bands, and they're all like good friends of mine. They've played here a couple times. Yeah. Yeah. They're super fun. And they were like a really unique thing. They didn't sound like any other DC band. They weren't concerned with that. But they were doing their thing. But Joe Easley, the drummer for the band, he had always told me that uh, he wanted to be a rocket scientist. And I was like, oh, that's kind of, you know, too bad for you that you're going to be a rock star instead because your band is, you know, he was like, they were one of the bands that like would, you know, every year they'd wind up on Jimmy Fallon and they would like, you know, wind up on some things. They got a call from the guys in Pearl Jam and were invited to go on tour with them. And we're all like, Finally, (laughs) someone in D.C. has made it. This is great. This is awesome. And they all went on tour and then they came home and they all bought houses with the money they made from their summer tour. And then they all decided that they didn't want to do this when they were 40. So they like quit. And their sort of contemporaries are like 
Death Cab for Cutie. Yep. They were they're on parallel tra trajectories and they had like this tour called the death and dismemberment tour. Mm -hmm. And like, they had like a similar thing. There's no reason that they both weren't going to like the same make place. It. Right. Yeah. And they just decided they didn't want to do it. And I was mad for so long. <laughs> I was just like, you guys are ruining my life. Yeah. This is, I put so much time and effort into this and you just quit. Like, what are you going to do? And then Joe was like, I'm going to be a rocket scientist. And I'm happy to say Joe spent one summer hand polishing uh, a giant piece of glass and made a huge telescope by hand. It's in his house. He then enrolled in school and uh, was the, he was always into RC helicopters. Yeah. He worked at this tech company with all of these like, super nerd guys that all had RC helicopters with cameras on them and they would just make ridiculous videos. And I don't know if you've ever flown an RC helicopter. It is a million times more difficult than a drone. You like, I've never not crashed one, but these guys all flew them. He was a really good pilot with them. And then he wound up when he went to the university of Maryland, right. he wound up being the wind tunnel pilot for all of the students that had to like make, prototype RC helicopters. Ah, that's such a cool job. Yeah. And now he works at NASA. He's in a robotics department and also the safest test pilot of all time, but yeah, <laughs> take that Chuck here. <laughs> Should have done it in a wind tunnel. He wound up, uh, you know, he like was part of the team that made like the arm on the Mars Rover. And that's so cool. Uh, and so a little bit, I, I, he makes me super happy, super proud that like, okay, he was, he meant it the whole time. Yeah. He always meant it. Yeah. And it's not that easy because most people say they want to be in a rock band, want to be in a rock band. And when they don't, then they wind up working at Best Buy or something. Mm -hmm. And, you know. Devo. Devo all went on to be like computer scientist guys, like, or a lot of them. Hallelujah. It was a weird, like, right. random thing. But yeah, it it is, you know. I know a lot of people in bands and it's definitely like you get to this point where it's like, I don't know if I can, I mean, we had a guy on the show a couple of years ago, world traveling musician for a big name guy. And he's like, I can't do this anymore. Like right. I just have to do something different because it's not, I think a lot of times you look at that and you're like, man, being the onset photographer for Anthony Bourdain sounds amazing. Or being a monster garage when this moment happens sounds amazing. But there are trade-offs yeah, getting there. Yeah. Right. And, um, no matter how successful you get, I think there's trade-offs and, and some people just don't want to make that trade and that's okay. You know, I think that's like a thing that people need to understand is that, um, when you're young, you have this idealized version of everything. Mm -hmm. And when you get to that thing and you recognize that you didn't understand it the way, or maybe it, it's changed. Like I know so many guys who like, grew up imagining that they would be kiss and then the industry is not that anymore nope yeah it's like not even a thing where they're probably like a dozen bands who like could play stadiums and write you know goofy rock anthems and like yeah. make a billion dollars uh but it's like the the minuscule amount of it i, I worked on a documentary with charles barkley and 
the thing that made me super happy was that he was going around trying to find black kids who weren't like pursuing sports. He wanted to celebrate kids who did other things. Right. Because he's like, you know, he's like, being a professional athlete is a great thing. It's like a, it's fun. It's like an honor to sort of represent this sort of stuff. It's amazing to just get to play the game that you like for the rest of your life. But that's not what the community needs. Right. Community needs people who are going to be plumbers and doctors and every every other facet of the community needs to be filled out by people and if a kid who isn't you know isn't really going to commit to what it takes to become a professional athlete he's like the odds are always against you and i, I don't know what they are but he he always had a ton of stats like you know if there are 10,000 people who play high school sports you know Whatever. A hundred of those make it to college. Right. A hundred of them make it to college. Ten of and those then, make it to the NFL. One of those makes a living, right? right like, right. yeah. I don't know. The, I made those numbers. Yeah, no, up. no. That's, I'm not actually that's a sort statistician. Of, you can watch his documentary and then you can yeah. see. He'll like drop those real yeah. facts on you. And I thought that that was like a really like sort of important and like honorable thing for a guy who is like an athlete to go like, this is not the only road. Right. You don't have to like, also it's not an easy road that he was even saying like, you know, the, the people who are like physically gifted enough to do it, he said is super small, but then the number of people who aren't physically gifted enough, but who are driven enough to make it happen is even smaller. Mm -hmm. So if you're not the guy who's like, you know, Seven six, six, one, right. Yeah. Like high school team. <laughs> Yeah. And you know, you're not this fast or you're not already better than everyone. He's like, you have to be so driven. Then you're up to against do the it. John Stocktons and Larry Birds and the, those right. guys, right? Who right. like just mind over matter almost their way in. Yeah, that's crazy. I could literally talk to you forever. Oh my God. Um, we will. But <laughs> uh yeah, we should continue this conversation. Um, but what I what I like to ask at the end of every show, or it's not even ask, I'm going to start a sentence and you finish it with whatever comes to mind. Oh my God. I'm There's no wrong answer. Okay. All right. I wish I could. Um, uh, I wish I could live forever. Really though? A little bit. All no, your here, friends wait, here, die. I die. You no, would, no. Like, you'd have to mourn me forever. Right. But there would be <laughs> new friends. Along oh, the way. all right. All right. No, so you're not nostalgic. <laughs> no, no. This is the thing. This is the thing. So I, when I was younger, I believed that 40 was the end of practical life. And I always said, if I make it to 40, I'm going to jump a motorcycle across something that I can't jump across, or I'm going to make a rocket and blow myself up trying to shoot myself into orbit, or I'm going to do something ridiculous to end it going all. Going out big. And then at some point I met someone who was 40 that blew my mind. And I was like, okay, it's not 40. Maybe it's 50. If I get to 50, then the whole same scenario. I'm going to jump a motorcycle across something you can't jump. I'm going to make a rocket to go to space. <laughs> right. And then that went on. And then I went to work for Jane Goodall 
And I used to sit up with her, like we would stay in these random houses of donors and stuff. It was like we were doing traveling stuff and we would just talk about things. And I realized that uh, life is never enough. You never have enough time to accomplish everything that you want to do. And so I still don't eat well enough, but I re have rethought all of that with the idea that like there is always so much to accomplish and like, you know, it, it time accelerate. This is a thing that only old people understand really, but time accelerates as you get older. Yeah. And it goes by so fast. My son is 11 today. And honestly, I still remember him strapped to me walking around Brooklyn in the middle of the night, you know, thinking that he would be a baby forever. Yeah. And it's just not the case. Also, I'm glad you've uh, upped your timeline for like when life is over because I just turned 40 and I'm not ready to like <laughs> jump a motorcycle over something I can't make. I'm like, I'm feeling I know, pretty but good I mean, about Don't you 40, got a motorcycle actually, like, in mind? I, I've got a motorcycle. I guess I could try to jump it. Yeah. And trying to jump it literally off a one foot ramp would probably kill me. So I don't <laughs> No, don't, don't do it. Life is worth living. It's I've really, uh, I've really enjoyed it. So I always kind of look at, I think mentally like, how you feel about where things are going really determines your emotional state as you hit these milestone markers, right? So if you feel like things are on a good path, you're like, yeah, I'm doing this thing. Like, this is good. I'm probably at like the prime of whatever, like 40s great reset. Mm -hmm. If you don't like what's going on, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm already here. And this is all I have, right? Like, or all I've done. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're, you're can, to me, it's an urgent, like keep pursuing the things I love because that is going to make the time spent well lived. Right. And as I hit those mile markers, I can look back and be like, I can't believe I got to do all that. And I can't wait for that next mile marker and everything I accomplish yeah. there. But you do have some people that crawl into bed and watch TV and it just seems like they're counting down the time. And those are the people I think dread 50, 60, 70, because you're just kind of waiting for the light to dim right you know? it, like, it's it's never actually too late to start most things it might be too late to start your skateboarding career but stan lee was like 70 something whenever right like when he was marvel late, movies like, started coming yeah out when this he, thing you know like older than that probably yeah. you know this thing he'd been, he'd been yeah. doing it for a long time but like all of a sudden it hits and there's some other people like samuel jackson was like late 40s early 50s when he started acting which also has to make him like 200 years old but you know like <laughs> like this guy was late late in air quotes mm -hmm. into the thing and look at everything that guy's and a lot of people are like 40 life's over it's like well <laughs> not for him like right. i mean he's right. really living it up i honestly do feel like i'm just getting started yeah um and you know i i have i had this conversation with um i've had it with a couple of people recently but i I feel like the exact same person that I've always been. Yeah. And, you know, I meet like friends of mine from my hometown who are like, oh my God, you've done so much. And I was like, no, really, I am just getting started and I am still doing exactly what I have always done, finding something that I'm compelled by and pursuing it. And a lot of those people, like, I feel like they're that thing where they like, either got frustrated or got scared by pursuing something. And so maybe they settled or maybe they like, you know, I talked to a friend the other day who was like telling me 
that she had like gone to rehab like two years ago. And we were talking about it a little bit, but there was like one specific thing that happened that sort of derailed her like when we were in school. Yeah. And like that one thing led up to all this. And she's like, now I'm like 49 years old and I've just, you know, just in the last two years have just been able to identify like, oh yeah, that's like, that's what my hangup has been. And, you know, she's like, everyone else has done all this since then. I was like, it doesn't matter. Like you just start, start now. now. Yeah. And then you, move forward. You don't have to be winding up. And I feel like a lot of people like mentally at 40, 50, 60, I'm winding up. I retired at 65. Yeah. I'm winding up. And it's like, why? Like, right. I'm never going to retire. No. And I think that's the, if there's an ingredient to staying young, it's that idea of like, well, why are you actively planning to slow down? Right. Like right. just keep going till literally something starts to give out. And yeah. even then figure out a way to keep going. Right. Like there are plenty of people that do it without legs or eyes or whatever the thing yeah. is. Like, you can figure out a path forward. Don't let it stop you. I, uh, Hallelujah. I, really, I really could talk to you forever, but um, in the interest of trying to keep the show nearish an hour. Uh, You're going to edit this down to 10 minutes, aren't you? Yeah, that's when I'm going to cut out all of your talking parts, and it'll just be me. Good. Good. <laughs> Thanks, sir. Hey, anytime, man. Let's do it again. Yeah. Look What I Did is produced by Aaron Dotson and Daniel Quinn. Sound designed by Daniel Quinn. Our digital director is Heather Cullen.